If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy 3, uh, verses uh, 8 through 13 of this uh, chapter. If you have a heading, it says qualifications for deacons. So we considered uh, elders last time and pick it up at verse 8 through verse 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great <clears throat> great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. So the word deacon that's in that verse 8, that... Um, the word diaconus, diaconos, uh, is just can, is a, a general word in most usages in the New Testament to mean servant. It's just talking about someone who serves in one form or another. There are a few occasions in the New Testament where it is officially the office of a deacon. Uh, here's one of them here in First Timothy three eight in um, Philippians 1, one, and I won't have you turn to all these, so let me just read a few of them. Uh, we will turn to some others. In Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, he writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, that's the word for slave, doulos, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. That's the uh, bishops and the deacons. They're it would have reference to the specific office of a deacon, the officers uh, with Paul. But it's used a lot in the New Testament simply for acts of service. So, for example, in the account in John 12, when uh, Martha and Mary are having a, having a dinner for Jesus and the disciples, it says, so they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served. That doesn't mean she took on the office of a deacon. It just means she served in that role. Um, in Luke 17, verse 8, thinking of the master of the feast, will he not rather say to him, the, the, the true slave, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me. That's the word deacon, diaconus. Serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. So it's a word that in its general usage in the New Testament, is simply the word for service. It's a characteristic all of us really should have. Uh, we, we don't have to have an office to serve. In fact, um, it's sort of a pet peeve of mine 
I get aggravated when people are so expect, expecting an office. Now, it's not that it's wrong to desire to serve in an office. I'm not saying that's a wrong thing. But you don't need an office to serve. You serve. Whatever God puts in front of you, you serve. You don't have to be elected to an office to finally get busy serving. It's, it's in serving that you actually show yourself qualified to be willing to take up an office. Uh, Jesus gave some significant usages of the word in regard to himself. Uh, the uh, famous text in Mark 10 uh, where the disciples are arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And they each want places of authority. And Jesus says specifically to them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. So there you see two different words, diakonos and doulos. We're going to be a servant. But now here's the key. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So in a sense, you could say, well, Jesus is the Episcopos. He's the bishop, the overseer. He's also the deacon. He's the model. He's the um the example of, of true service, he came not to be served, but to serve. He came to exemplify uh, what that word means. Uh, and you have uh, the word servants that's used uh, not only for Christ, it's used of the apostles. I mean, the apostles had, in a sense, the role of elder. They also have the role of deacon. Uh, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, are they, he, Paul's speaking about the other elders, uh, the other apostles, are they servants of Christ? Are they deacons of Christ? Well, yeah, they were. They didn't have the office of deacon. Although in Presbyterian uh, terminology, Presbyterian thinking, usually the the higher office includes the lower office in it. So, for example, in a church that's small, that doesn't have uh, enough people to have both elders and deacons, the elders are required to take on the responsibility of the deacon uh, until such time as God raises up men to serve in that particular office. But here the word servants, deacons, is being used for the apostles. Uh, Paul's Paul uses the, the word in this verse in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, it's translated ministry, but it's the word deacon. Since we have this service, we do not lose heart. In Romans eleven thirteen, he says the same similar thing. I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry. My service. So he's an apostle, but he's also, a, in that sense, a deacon. He's a servant. Uh, it doesn't matter what office you have. What matters is, are you, will, are, you, are you a willing servant to God's people? 
That's that's the key thing. <clears throat> um, hopefully, you're still in First Timothy. So look at verse uh, chapter four, verse six, uh, where Paul is urging Timothy to be a good minister. For First Timothy four six, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. When he says you will be a good minister, that's the word deacon. You will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. So to be a faithful minister is to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Okay, so where does the office of the diaconate begin? You know, where, what's the origin of it? <clears throat> There's an Old Testament story that... Um, gives us some background. Turn to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus 18. And uh, we'll read from 13 through 26. Won't take much time with these, but I do want to read it. It says, Romans, excuse me, Exodus 18, 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute. They come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them, I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will, with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. And every matter that... They shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And Moses does what his father-in-law Jethro had advised. Now, since this is about ruling, uh, you can make the argument that this background is really more to do with the office of the elder. But the principle and the point is, that a lesser office is given by God to help uh, the greater office, in this case Moses, in his role as the prophet, to function well. And God placed these other men, these honorable men, uh, that, that could work and free Moses up to do the work that God had called him to do. So now turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> and 
In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, laid their hands on them, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So even though the word deacon isn't used in this text, uh, it's commonly understood that this is the origin of the office and role of the deacon. And the calling of the deacon was to... Uh, take care of serving tables. In one sense, the word deacon means that. Um, it's to serve the tables, to take care of the widows, so that the apostles could give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the, the dramatic and dynamic thing that happened is when the deacons came along and did that, the uh, word of God increased and the church grew rapidly. It's when each person in their own calling functions, it it helps the church to function well. And so some of the significant elements of this chapter are the qualifications uh, that are given in verse 3. The men are elected by the congregation. uh, They are ordained by the apostles. They're set apart and hands laid on them, set them apart to serve in this office, and then as a result, the church grew. So we have um, very early in the life of the church, the role and office of the deacon being formed. But by the time Paul's writing these pastoral epistles, uh, we're talking something like 30 years later, Paul's going to near the end of his life, and it, it's only, it only makes sense for Paul to lay out the things that Timothy needs to know to help the church function most effectively. And that includes the offices of the elder and the deacon. Uh, these men and their offices already existed. They, they appointed elders in every city and where they formed a church. And by implication, deacons were elected. So it's not that these are new, but Paul is giving instruction and laying it out in an orderly way for them to understand uh, what these roles are and who are qualified for them. So not to leave Acts 6 just yet, although you may have already, the qualifications from Acts 6 are 
You're to choose men from among you who are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So a man to be a deacon is, um, he needs to be a spiritual man. He needs to be a man full of wisdom. The deacon is not someone who uh, just has the ability to fix the plumbing. Now that can be helpful at different times, uh, but that's not, that's not really the primary thing. He, he may be involved in those kind of tasks and responsibilities, but it takes a great deal, deal of spirituality and it takes a great deal of wisdom to handle the finances of the church. Uh, not everybody can do that. I'm sure the majority of you, if you happen to know what other people were giving to the church, it would be a stumbling block to you. Uh, you would think ill of people or maybe be in awe of people, whatever the case might be. It takes a great deal of wisdom, a great deal of spirituality for a man to handle that kind of responsibility. And uh, it's worthy of saying a deacon is not an elder in training. A deacon is not an inferior office. Sometimes in church settings, that has kind of been communicated. I've known Presbyterian churches in the past where the deacons were kind of like second-class citizens. Well, that's just simply not the case. There's a difference in role, and in a sense there's a, a, a... an order of authority, but nevertheless, um, a deacon needs to be a spiritual man and a man of wisdom. And then now turn back to First Timothy 3, if you're not all there already, and I'll group some of these qualifications together. But here Paul spells out, and it parallels the um, the list as given for the elders earlier in the chapter. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. And I'll pause there for a moment. Uh, He uses the word likewise uh, in a similar way as the deacons, excuse me, as the elders have a set of qualifications. In the same way, the deacons have a set of qualifications uh, to help us to understand who's uh, qualified for the office. Or, or worthy of being put into that office. And this, the basic word there in that verse is they need to be dignified or respectable. That's the operative word. A deacon, as a mature man, has to be have respectability. And then the rest of the verse fills that out with three negatives. Uh, what does it mean to be respectable? The first thing is he's not double-tongued. Um, some translations have the word sincere. In other words, he's a man that he says something and you can trust what he says. He doesn't speak out of one side of his mouth and then out of the other side of his mouth and keep people confused or unsincere or, or uh, un, unable to trust them or know about them. Just to give you, to depart from this a little bit, Will Rogers once said... Uh, uh, an honest man is a man who's not afraid to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. So you want—that's the kind of man you want as a deacon. He—he'd sell his parrot to them. Uh, he needs to be not double-tongued, 
a credible, believable person. The second and third kind of go together, not indulging in much wine. Um, wine was a beverage of that day. We have strong opinions within the Christian community and our country about that, but it uh, doesn't mean he can't um, use that as a beverage. It means that he shouldn't be drunk. The third, uh, one, the third knot in that verse, not pursuing dishonest gain, in a sense, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain, go together. In other words, he's not uh, an addictive personality. Uh, he's not given under the given into the control of other things, where it be whether it be a substance abuse or whether it be um, his own uh, pr- pr- prominence. Whatever it might be, he's not an addictive kind of person. He's willing to serve. Uh, you know, he's honest, he's um, faithful, he's not given to extremes. There's a balance to the man, and that's an important uh, characteristic. The uh, So we've gone spirit and wisdom, the second being dignified or respectable. The third is he needs to have a, a genuine and informed faith. It's what comes up in verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I'm really surprised how some people get confused about this. This verse. The mystery is not something in the Bible that's hard to figure out. It's something that was hidden in the past and revealed now. And um, if you go back and read in Ephesians chapter 3, you get the whole picture of what the mystery was. It was the mystery of the bringing in of the Gentiles, the mystery of the gospel, hidden or covered in a way in the Old Testament, but now clearly revealed in Christ. And it's the mystery of the faith. As Jude would say it, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There's a body of doctrine, a body of truth. Our particular uh, version of it is in the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. That's a body of the truth we believe once for all delivered to the saints. And the deacon should be a man who uh, understands that and is committed to that. That he holds fast to the mystery of the faith. Uh, that um, that's a part of his life. A part of his commitment um, to the to the Lord and to the church. And the last part of verse 9 is he holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, it's a living faith. It impacts his thinking, his willing, his believing. It's a pure conscience. Uh, so all his thinking and all his behavior and all his decisions are guided by the mystery of the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. And so it's a very significant, uh, the, the role of his conscience, that's the, the role of conscience has been a significant thing in Timothy. Uh, so look back at chapter 1, verse 5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In verse 19 in chapter 1, uh, he tells Timothy, holding on to faith and a good conscience. 
So it's, it's that part of our being, our mind, our heart, our will that uh, helps guide us. And the connection between the faith and the, the mystery of the faith once we're all delivered to the saints and the conscience goes together, they form the compass that guides the deacon in all his work, in his character, in his person. And Jonathan Edwards, he had a very good description of this. He says, he likened the conscience to a sundial and God's word to the sun, and that only the light of the sun will give the correct reading on the sundial. Moonlight cannot work. Candlelight is foolishness. Both will mislead you. But the sunlight of the scripture will always guide the conscience to the truth. And I find that it's a really helpful illustration. It's the word of God that informs our consciences, that helps guide our decisions, and that we make toward uh, proper behavior. Uh, The fourth test, uh, the fourth uh, qualification in verse 10, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now here, blameless doesn't mean that they're perfect. But the point here is the same as the point in the, in the uh, qualifications for the elder. In the uh, qualifications for the elder, remember it says, not a novice. In other words, a person shouldn't be an elder who's a new believer, who's new to the faith, who hasn't studied, who hasn't um, isn't knowledgeable about the teaching of Scripture. Same thing with a deacon. There, a man shouldn't serve as a deacon if he hasn't uh, have some experience, some knowledge, uh, some maturity. Uh, it's the exercise of that maturity in their lives and in their service that helps uncover their qualification to um, to serve as a deacon. And then we come to verse 11, which is uh, a controversial verse, at least in some circles. It says, And their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And there are those who argue that what what this is saying, Paul is saying, is he's creating a third office, the office of deaconess. And some of their arguments for that are the word likewise. You know, the elders had their qualifications, likewise the deacon, deacons, likewise the deacons' wives. And so they would advocate uh, the um, creating of a, a third office uh, for women to serve in as uh, deacons. Uh, same qualifications otherwise. Well, and they are the same qualifications as for a deacon, <clears throat> and some would look to um, some of the ladies mentioned in in um, Acts and in Romans. I won't take you to them. Uh, there in Acts nine thirty six is a woman named Dorcas who was a very faithful servant. She was her life was full of good works, uh, but again she's serving. The word deacon isn't used in relation to her, but. Um, her life is full of good works. And so they'll say, well, look at her. Uh, the, the Phoebe, which is who's mentioned in Romans 16, 1 and 2, is one who um, is referred to by the word service. 
And so they would say, well, that shows that she was a in the office of a deacon. But hopefully you know, just because the word service is used doesn't mean that's necessarily the office. <clears throat> and I'm going to run out of time to really go into all this. Um, why I don't think it's a separate office. Uh, we don't know. Oh, one of the complaints, too, was, well, they didn't, Paul didn't say anything about the elders' wives. Why in the world is he now talking about the deacons' wives? And we don't know. I don't know why he talked about deacons' wives and didn't talk about elders' wives. But the, um, the reason I think you can see that there, they are, it does mean wives. Some people, some translations want to say women. But it's the very same word for woman as is used in the very next verse. Uh, regarding the deacon being a husband of one wife, and it's clearly a reference to his wife. And um, I think the reality is uh, part of why perhaps Paul did single this out. Uh, the elders' wives are immensely necessary and helpful and invaluable. But a deacon is often involved in very intimate connections with families, uh, visiting widows, visiting families in need. Uh, and it would be, put them in situations where it would be sensitive, because uh, it wouldn't be proper for him to go and meet with a woman alone. And so, whether it's his wives or whether perhaps there are a group of women who assist the deacons in, in certain ministries. Just like we have one, our ladies are wonderful in uh, caring for people in need, uh, providing meals, providing service, helping them. They, it just shows the tremendous importance of you women in caring for the people of the church. And so the officers um, need your help to come alongside uh, to help with particularly those sensitive situations where women are a part of it and it would be inappropriate for the man to be there with the woman alone. Uh, so the there's no reason to think that it's not referring to his wife and how she is helpful and uh, how she should serve in an honorable way as well or help in an honorable way that he and her can go to minister to those various needs. Uh, one more uh, said it, one more quali quality is verse 12, um, let the deacon, his, his household, let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Again, domestic abilities, domestic uh, use. It, it, it's not good if a man is serving as a leader in the church, if he can't manage things in his own home. That's his first priority. And uh, so we have that guidance as well as being the husband of one wife. Um the last element of the text is the deacon's reward in verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith 
that is in Christ Jesus. So a man that serves well in this particular office and calling uh, gets a great standing in the church and before men. He's respected. Uh, his work is appreciated. His service is um, honored. And it's a, a great uh, encouragement to the man in doing his work when his work is respected. And that along with that, a parallel is that they have great confidence in the faith. And so we have a man who serves well in the office of a deacon. Not only uh, he has a standing in the church community, but it also encourages him in the faith. His faith is strengthened. He has confidence before the Lord as he walks in faith. And so Paul lays out here the um, qualifications, the qualities of a man who would serve in the office of a deacon. But I come back to the point I made at the very beginning. And that is, while there are these men who are called to this service, and God has a very important work for them to do, the reality is you don't need to be in an office to serve. And it ought to be the case for each and every one of you, the young people, to the oldest of us here, uh, that we, in whatever way we can, we serve. That we give of ourselves uh, for the care of other people. You're not too young and you're not too old to serve. Uh, there may be things beyond your ability, but you can still serve in whatever way you can. And so that's my challenge really to all of you. Be a servant of Christ. Care for other people. And minister to them. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, the, the, the deacon, the servant, Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We thank you for the hope of the faith in the gospel that we have that uh, is held forth in your word. Thank you that you have called men to serve as deacons in this church and in other churches as well in the service they give to you. Uh, we thank you for them. And we pray your strength and empowerment of them in their work and your encouragement in their faith. And we pray, Lord, that each of us might be willing servants of yours in whatever way we can, to be a help and encouragement to others so that your church might grow and your people might be blessed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.